like with tomatoes and tomatoes, people say words differently depending on where they were raised or where they went to seminary. And so Steve's place says Hagar and my place said Hagar. And I don't think I can change in the sermon because I won't forget. So <laughs> it's not that either of us is wrong or right. They're just different ways that we pronounce it. It's also a story that a lot of my friends in ministry says, I'm not going to touch that one. It's not an easy story, is it? It's, it's a hard one. Um, but we miss a lot if we skip it. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Especially if we do skip this story, then we remember Abraham and Sarah as being these strong, kindly people of faith. After all, it was by faith that they trusted God enough to leave their home and all their friends and everything that was familiar to follow God on a path where they didn't know where it would lead. Yet in today's account of the Bible, they don't look so shiny, do they? Unfortunately, like everyone today, they were complex characters, not all good, not all bad, but today, in this story, they were pretty rotten. For those of you who don't know it, I'll give you a little more backstory before today's part of the saga. You see, many, many years ago, God had promised that the couple's descendants would be as numerous as the stars. But after year after year after year passed and no children had come, and Sarah was way past the age when you have a baby, the couple decides to take control of the situation instead of just continuing to trust in God. And they decide to do something to help it along the way. Abraham and Sarah had slaves. Tragically, in those days, not only did many people have slaves, but female servants were required to be available to the masters in the bedroom. Sarah has an idea. She tells Abraham to give her, to give her a child through their Egyptian slave, Hagar. It isn't horrific enough when Hagar becomes pregnant, Sarah is jealous. She takes out her rage on Hagar and abuses her so much that Hagar flees into the wilderness to escape. There are surprising things that happen to this woman who in the ancient world is considered to be an outcast, almost more of an object than a human being. Only in the eyes of God, in the eyes of God, she is beloved. Did you know that Hagar is the first person in all of scripture to encounter an angel? According to the biblical scholar Dolores Williams, in these Old Testament stories, when we hear that an angel visits someone, it means that the very presence of God is revealed, wrapped in a form the person can comprehend. So out there in the wilderness, Hagar encounters the Lord. God comforts her, encourages her, and when she is just a poor, 
pregnant slave girl left to her own devices in the desert, she suddenly realizes, hey, God sees me. She has been invisible to everyone else, but she knows God sees her. And she is so blown away with this reality that she also becomes the only person in Scripture to ever give God a name. All the rest are taking the name they were told God would have, but she gives God a name, and she calls God El-Rohi, which means the God who sees. After returning to Abram's house, Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. And then the unimaginable occurs, when lo and behold, you probably remember this part, Sarah finds out that despite her very advanced age, she is going to have her own child. She names him Isaac, which means God laughs or laughter. But one day, Sarah stops laughing. She sees the two kids, the older Ishmael and little baby Isaac, playing together, laughing together, doing what brothers might do, and she gets upset. Her joy seems to be replaced with suspicion and selfishness and anger. She just can't stand it. Even though God has promised Sarah that her son will be the one to carry on the family line, she knows that in their culture, the firstborn gets the inheritance. So instead of trusting God's promise, she plots against Hagar. In an act of utter cruelty, Sarah demands that Abraham throw Hagar and Ishmael out immediately. In her eyes, Hagar has no worth. She's treated as a problem to be dealt with rather than one of God's beloved children created in God's image. God can take even the worst we do, though, and turn it around. So even through though Abraham is upset and doesn't understand why, God tells him to go ahead and follow Sarah's plans. Because God has other plans. A little water and bread are all that Abraham gives this mother and son. Can you imagine that pathetic scene as Abraham stands there while his abused slave and his son walk away in the desert wilderness toward what he can only assume will be their deaths? Fast forward and we find Hagar and Ishmael so starved and thirsty that the vultures have to be circling. Fine dust from the desert coats their throats, scratches, and chokes them. Before long, Ishmael is dehydrated. He's dying. Hagar holds him till there's nothing else she can do. She probably kisses him on the forehead, and then she tenderly lays him down under a bush. And in her grief, she goes a little distance away, falls on her knees, tears staining her cheeks. And the only thing she asks God is to spare her from having to watch the moment when the light goes out of Ishmael's eyes. But remember, God has other plans. An angel comes to Hagar and says, don't be afraid. 
God, who Abraham and Sarah seem to think only listen to them, has heard the cry of the boy and has compassion. Then this God, who makes a way out of no way, opens Hagar's eyes to see a well of water there in the desert. Where she only saw death, there was life. The reason God had told Abraham to do what Sarah said and send them away in the first place was not because God was cruel or taking sides. God knows that things would just get worse for her if she stayed around Sarah's jealousy and anger, knew that the abuse would continue. So God lets them send them away to save them. In the wilderness, there is water to give them strength for living and a promise to give them hope for the future. Like Isaac, Ishmael also will be the father of many nations. Despite the worst that humanity has to offer, God has been with Hagar, beckoning her into a new day. I don't think you and I realize when we become too focused on protecting what we have or trying to control the aspects of our lives, keeping things predictable and comfortable, we often fail to notice the Hagars in our world. Some folks seem to have the need to deny they exist. From time to time, I encounter someone who will try to tell me that all poor people are just lazy or that it's all just a scam, they aren't really poor, they probably have big screen TVs. Such a perspective can reduce me to tears because I have seen abject poverty up close, not only in impoverished countries and in Appalachia, but even in our area of the country. People with no shoes or coats in winter People living in broken down, falling apart, unheated trailers in tents or on the street. Yes, we can always point to an example of someone somewhere taking advantage. But in all the years that people have come to the churches I have served for help, I can tell you with confidence that that is the exception and not the rule. Most folks are embarrassed, even humiliated, to ask for assistance. I guess convincing yourself that all poverty is a scam is a way of not seeing people who would break your heart if you opened your eyes. Poverty isn't the only way that someone finds themselves not seen or heard in this world. There are times when you and I or the people around us can feel that way. I asked the children about it because they obviously have those experiences too. And they have so many questions and all these feelings that they just want to understand. There are ways in which we all need to know that someone notices us and cares about us, especially God. In his ministry, Jesus did that for people all the time. He paid attention, especially to the folks that the rest of society pushed to the margins, letting them know that they were precious to God. The context of our gospel lesson today is that Jesus sending the disciples out to preach and teach others in his name won't always be easy. And that's when he tells them that some will reject their message or even seek to do them harm. But God will always be with us.
If you've ever wondered if God cares about you or wondered if God is just too busy with other things to bother God with the little details of your life, Jesus tells us that we can rest assured that God is paying attention. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet when even one of them falls to the ground, God knows and cares what happens to it. No life is too small, too insignificant for God. If God can create and notice and care for the swallows, for those common little brown birds, how much more will God care for you and whatever you are going through in your life? At the end of the service today, we will be singing His Eye is on the Sparrow, but I don't know if you ever heard how the writer explained how she came to write it. The writer's name was Sevilla Martin, and she wrote this. She said, in the spring of 1905, my husband and I were sojourning in Elmira, New York. We contracted a deep friendship with a couple by the name of Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle, true saints of God. Mrs. Doolittle had been bedridden for over 20 years. Her husband was wheelchair bound, but still went to his business every day. Despite their challenges, they lived happy and generous Christian lives, bringing inspiration and comfort to all who knew them. One day while we were visiting with the Doolittles, my husband commented on their bright hopefulness and asked them the secret to their joy in the midst of pain. Mrs. Doolittle simply replied, if his eye is on the sparrow, then I know he watches me. The beauty of that expression of simple faith gripped my heart, and that same evening I wrote the song based on the message of Scripture. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. What a comfort when life is hard. God's love for us doesn't depend on what we have done or what we have not done. It is dependent on the nature of God. It is a gift. Even when it feels like God has abandoned us and we are alone in the world, we are not. We are seen. We are loved. David Dykes tells of a group of Native Americans that has a particular ritual for 13-year-old boys. It gives them their first experience of being away from home. On the night of their birthday, they are taken in the woods to spend the night alone. One young man was blindfolded, led into the wilderness, and told not to remove the blindfold for an hour. On this particular night, dark clouds obscured the moon and the stars, and when he finally removed the blindfold, all he could see was utter darkness. Every time a twig snapped, he imagined a wolf leaping out of the darkness. When the first rays of sunlight revealed his surroundings of trees and flowers, to his utter amazement, he beheld the figure of a man standing just a few feet away. It was the boy's father. He had been there watching all night long. Whatever you and I face in life, whether it is joyful and full of laughter or so painful that we don't know how we're going to make it through another day, we can trust that God is right there with us, loving us, 
pointing to the well of water when we need it most. If you ever read the book, The Little Prince, you may remember when it says, what makes the desert beautiful is that somewhere it hides a well. But the eyes are blind. One must look with the heart. Friends, God not only loves you and cares for you, but is there for you every moment, showing you where to find a well of new life in your desert places. Just look with your heart. Amen.